0: Welcome to the HR for Small Business podcast, where we discuss HR best practices, hot topics, strategy, and employment law changes that affect small business. I'm your host, Brandon Laws of Zenium HR. Our website is www.zeniumhr.com, where you can follow us, read articles, listen to our recent podcasts, or contact us thanks for listening and enjoy the topic in this episode. I'd like to welcome Molly Kelly and Lacey Halpern to the program today. They're returning podcast guests and for today's program we're actually going to do a, a discussion on a book we read for our Xenium Book Club. So welcome both of you and thanks for being with us. Thank you. So the book we read is by Patrick Lencioni. It's called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, a Leadership Fable. And in this book, it's surprisingly, it's not just the dry business book that we're all used to reading. It's really it's a fable, as the title suggests. So there is a story, and basically that story is set around a CEO who is brought in. Her name's Catherine, and she's coming into a team that's completely dysfunctional, they don't work together, and it's a very toxic executive team. And she's really tasked with bringing them together and cleaning up the executive team. So let's kind of dive in to some of the things we have prepared. One of the things they really start with is the concept of trust. And I'll throw it out to you both. What can employers do to really build a culture of trust where trust may not exist altogether? So the foundation of building the trust. Molly, I'll, let's go with you I'll first. jump in
1: and and suggest that I think one thing that you see throughout the book and something that I've seen in in client cultures or companies that we've worked with um, where there has been high trust is um, it does start with the executive leadership team or the senior leadership team um, and it's essentially watching them walk the walk so they are embodying uh, high trust both towards their employees and then they are trusted individuals so they follow through uh, they're authentic in their communication transparent about organizational change and that filters down hopefully through all levels of the organization.
2: Yeah, I would agree that transparency is really important. I think another thing that gets referenced in the book is the ability to be vulnerable. And so when you share with your peers or your subordinates what your weaknesses are, I think there's something to be said about that, that that creates a trust with that person to also be vulnerable and being vulnerable builds
0: trust. I remember when they they first went to the retreat in in the book, of course, and they basically had to share some of their weaknesses and they had to be really authentic about it. And I think for some of the people in the story, that was really tough. And I wonder in real life business setting, how hard is that for, for some executives to really just be vulnerable in certain situations and just really open up?
2: I think it would be it can be really challenging, especially because in a leadership role, you're often seen to be the person that's like got it all together and doesn't make mistakes. And um, there's a piece to holding that leadership role and keeping things together. You're not able, though, to build trust with your coworkers, with your colleagues, with your internal team if you can't share what your weaknesses are so those people can support you.
1: And that's not usually a place that you start from right off the bat in a relationship. And that's, I think, the big place that she was coming from with this is there was no relationship. They mm-hmm. were all siloed in their own departments and their own interests and didn't share a common link. So she actually started from kind of a team-building exercise of tell me where you grew up, tell us a little bit about what sports you play, family, things like that, because we're all people outside of our workplace. Mm-hmm. And to think that we can abandon that um, and and just be coworkers Without realizing that there's a greater life and a being behind that is is not functional. I think it's it's sort of disrespectful to the fact that we all have other interests and that we have connections that are intertwined within that.
0: There was a quote that I absolutely loved, and I highlighted it when, as I was reading it, and it says, "Politics is when people choose their words and actions based on how they want others to react, rather than based on what they really think." And I highlighted that because I thought it was a fantastic definition of the, just politics in general. Um, how often in the workplace are there hidden agendas and us saying really what we don't mean? And that foundation of trust is important. And w- when politics are kind of mixed in between, um, Absolutely.
1: What, do you think? what do you think? Yeah, I think it was interesting. This model has essentially um, tiers that it builds upon, trust being the, the base of the triangle um, that uh, the authors identified. Um, but the next step up is conflict, that you, know, you have to have some amount of conflict for things to really truly be um, productive and functional within a team. And that tends to be pretty uncomfortable for many people. I know I tend to shy away from conflict, even though you know, years of experience has taught me it can be beneficial, but I think we're trained, especially in a workplace setting, um, to avoid conflict, all conflict. And what, what the author is identifying, what you see the team go through is this realization that conflict can be healthy. Um, and it's certainly a lot less political in nature if things are out on the table and there's more transparency.
2: Yeah, I would agree that um, what you're speaking about conflict, it's important that um, it there's a safe place for that conflict to happen. And I think that when conflict exists in a way that furthers the conversation, it can show people's passions and what they care about. And if the space doesn't allow for those types of conversations to happen, I think people just get sort of stagnant and I think that that's kind of what that quote's leading to. Yeah,
0: and it's funny Patrick Lencioni in the book, he, he writes that meetings are a lot like movies, that they're boring unless they have some sort of conflict and there's so much truth to that statement but when you actually go to the business setting and you have a meeting that you're just kind of going through the motions, the conflict's not on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, is that the place for it? Is, is it the group meetings where conflict should be out there?
1: I think conflict can often um, indicate engagement. I mean, if we're not disagreeing or at least moving forward, there's some things where we're just inherently going to be in agreement on. You know, we want the company to be profitable or we want to be able to serve our clients well or what have you. But um, there's always going to be different opinions about how to get there. And there's many, many quotes out there, um, some of which are on our walls here in Zenium about, you know, if if no one is the dissenting voice, then someone's not speaking up. So there may be a, a different or a better way to do this. And if we aren't discussing it um, in a way that's productive and respectful, then that discussion, that valuable discussion may not be happening. We may be marching down the wrong path mm-hmm. as a group, essentially.
2: Right. I think there's a way to set up those meetings that you're talking about, Brandon, to where um, it's comfortable and it's expected that there might be conflict. And what's what are the ground rules? What's going to happen if conflict does come up? So that all of the players in the room know that you know, there's a way that we're going to approach it and everybody's ideas are valued and we want you to share our opinions and that there's usually somebody in a meeting that's sort of facilitating and helping the meeting move along and they're able to table discussions if they need to happen offline and maybe not in that setting.
0: I want to bring up this notion of consensus. So what we're talking about here is um, having some conflict in the meetings, but also there is a time where consensus kind of just happens. And I've often heard that when you have consensus, you're really displeasing everybody equally, but you're moving things along. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on consensus as it comes to the topic in this book? I
2: think I would say that consensus is important if it furthers the goals and the mission of the company. So if if where the company is standing is that we want to, like Molly said, be profitable and the consensus is around actions that get the company to meet that goal or meet that value or whatever it is that the company stands for, then I think consensus is the right thing. But if there's somebody that feels really passionately about something and they're not speaking up just to keep things moving along, I think that those ideas should be shared. And um, there's something that's, you know, holding that person back from sharing it. And so I think it's a, the, that person's leader's job or the facilitator of the meeting job to sort of get people engaged and excited about the topic so that people feel like they are able and, and it's a safe space to share.
0: Perhaps the consensus happens because nobody wants conflict. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I think when you look at the, the next stage up on that triangle, so you've got trust underlying conflict um, being kind of the next step up and then commitment. And that's actually one of the places that makes that that conflict safe Mm -hmm. is that we're all still committed to the same thing which is you know profitability for Mm -hmm. the company or uh it can even be in your personal life you know my husband and i are committed to the success of our marriage or you know my um my daughter and i want to have a great birthday party for you know for her or whatever it might be so the commitment is there the way we go about it might be different which can create conflict but again if you can keep coming back to that place of what we're all mutually committed to that's helpful and again not that it has to be conflict just for the sake of conflict. So, to Lacey's point, if every voice is being heard and truly people are committed, mm-hmm. then we're moving in the same direction. That's okay. It's when somebody is remaining silent because they have another perspective and they're concerned about it mm-hmm. or they're just not invested enough to speak up because the team is already moving in a direction that's when you have a real lack of mutual commitment, which is going to basically derail the entire conversation. I think that's
0: why it's so important for a team, especially in an organization, to have goals set, Mm -hmm. not only for the organization but for the team, because Mm -hmm. then you can hold each other accountable, which is really kind of leading into the further along in the book is accountability. Mm -hmm. So how do you hold other people accountable within the team, I should say?
1: Boy, I think that's a tough one because ideally you would want accountability to come from within. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the old school methodology of management was I would hold Brandon accountable to turning in these reports by this day. Um, I think modern managers have realized that, you know, accountability is a lot easier when it's driven from within. So, again, if you're standing in the same commitment to the team or the same commitment for the goals or the projects or whatever, I want to have this report done for our client by the 15th. Um, then everybody's moving in that same direction. Hopefully the players that have a piece of that will be personally accountable. But if that falls down or fails or falls apart, which happens, we're human, right? We have failures. Then the trust within the team to be able to say, hey, this didn't happen, um, you know, this was your accountability, you owned this. Um, and you see some really frank discussions within the book, which were to me, part of the most entertaining piece of the reading was seeing how these real life conversations unfold. And I thought a very natural, realistic mm-hmm. way um, around accountabilities.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a, um, what you're speaking to is, is getting people's buy-in, like they're not going to Task themselves to be accountable to something, if they haven't bought into it, they're not going to buy into it if they haven't had an opportunity to talk through the conflict. And they wouldn't do that if they didn't have the trust. So the way that Lencioni talks through this hierarchy, you really have to have each of these pieces before you're willing to actually take something on as an accountability. So I think it's important to um, kind of remind yourself um, of that commitment. So like you said, the goals, the company goals or vision or whatever it is that your organization calls it, if we can constantly go back to that as a reminder so that we can further along, you know, whatever it is, the initiative that the company is trying to push through, people are going to be more motivated to buy into those accountabilities.
0: Let's talk a little bit about a story that was within the book, talking about a basketball player and a team. This basketball player was a star performer and knew it, very ego-driven, really, was a star player, wanted to get their shots, get their points, really wasn't about the team. So as a, a leader of that team or an organization, how do you kind of reel in the star players to make sure that they're focused on the team first and not individually driven?
2: I think that starts with creating a culture within your organization where the team comes first, and and also recognizing like where does that employee get their juice from? Like what motivates them? What gets them excited? If if it really is about having individual um, recognition or meeting individual goals, and I think that that's important because that's what's motivating for them. But if the company's culture is a culture where the team is extremely important, and we ha- and what they're doing individually is actually a detriment to the team. So them being successful as an individual player. Is actually hurting their teammates. Then I think it's a conversation that that manager or leader, whoever it is within the organization, has to have with that particular person to explain the impact of their behavior.
0: And just to reiterate what you just said, it's not a public meeting, right? It's a it's face to face with that person.
2: Yeah, right? I think that that would be much more appropriate. Mm-hmm. But I think it needs to be um, to be impactful and to have the um, the best chance of really sinking in. I think it should be closely after a behavior is noticed. So if it's in, an, in a group meeting where this person is sort of out speaking the other people in the group or overtaking the meeting or whatever it is to be a detriment to that team, it's a frank conversation, open, authentic, building on trust with that person between the person and the manager after that meeting so that they can recognize the impact.
1: I think it's interesting that you seized on that story, Brandon, being this sports aficionado. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, the one that actually stuck out for me was the reverse side of that, which is um, an example that Catherine, the CEO in the book, gave about um, a, an instance wherein she allowed a star performer to um, mm, kind yes. of erode the team, and essentially this person was, you know, uh, so let's say they, this person exceeds expectations compared to the rest of the team. The rest of the team is meeting expectations. Okay. So in in her early management days, Catherine, the CEO in the book, is throwing more and more work to this person who is poisonous to the teammates, so they, they can't get along with him, he doesn't work well with others, doesn't play well with others. Um, but she continues to funnel work towards him because he's just so dang efficient. And eventually the whole team crumbles and they're losing people left, right, and center and she's actually fired over it. So I think that was a really interesting lesson of a star performer who, allowed to run with the bit in his mouth, essentially is is uh, essentially the downfall of the entire team, mm-hmm. because the manager in question didn't rein that person in and say, you know, this is not productive, and you can't behave in this manner, and I don't care how talented you are. It's not it's not productive for the rest of the team.
2: And wouldn't you say those are the most difficult conversations for your clients? I know they are for mine to have with a star performer who hits the goals, does the work, the clients love them, and they It's the internal team that struggles with that person. Those are really challenging. All the goals need to to be aligned.
0: And if that that star performer is not aligned with the organization's goals and the team in general, then it's. Absolutely. They're just doomed to fail, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. Yeah. And it's it's apparent after, especially after reading this book. um, I think that's really what I learned from it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Anything else that really stuck out to you as far as maybe just general takeaways from the book that others could get from?
1: You know, you mentioned the structure of the book with a fable. Um, so essentially, I would say probably about 80% of the book is is a story taking you through, almost like a fictional, it is a fictional story, mm-hmm. essentially, uh, taking you through these scenarios. And I just found that so much more re- readable. I do a lot of business reading, um, and a lot of them are pretty dry, and some of them will have real life examples, which is helpful. But the, the setup of this particular book just made it extremely readable and I think extremely relevant to see how, as a manager or as an HR professional, to see how these leaders interacted in a very genuine um, and, um, I don't know, honest way and, and with real life problems was really fascinating to me.
0: What group of people do you think this book is re- meant for? Is it the top-notch leader, or is it a team? Just somebody on the team?
2: I think it could be meant for an for an entire team, for a leadership team, mm-hmm. for a you know team of you know salespeople. This is not the first time that I've read the book, mm-hmm. and um, one of the things that I enjoyed about it is that I got such a different perspective out of it the second time reading it, working for a different organization than I was the first time I read it. Um, so I think that it's a book that. It's something you could revisit even on an annual basis um, with your team, and especially as teams change and people kind of shift around in their roles, I think it's a great refresher.
0: Our guests today have been Molly Kelly and Lacey Halpern. Thanks for coming on and discussing the five dysfunctions of a team. Our pleasure. This podcast is produced by Zenium Resources Inc., all rights reserved. For information on guests or for interview requests, please visit www.zeniumhr.com or email info at zeniumhr.com. Everything on this show should be considered educational and informational only, and not personal advice. Please consult with the appropriate tax, legal, or business professional for individualized advice.